Rusty, when we first spoke about this project, you told me you would like to do a podcast about addiction and recovery in America. You also indicated you would like it titled Children of Chaos. I'd appreciate you beginning our podcast with a brief overview of Children of Chaos for our listeners. Well, I heard of uh, Children of Chaos back when uh, I was probably around three years sober. I had moved uh, my second sponsor. I'd help him move to Santa Fe and get settled. And first time I'd ever been there, and I, it, and it, I just fell in love with it. So I had a probably my best friend, uh, Larry B. at that time, and, and uh, we were in recovery together. He came in a little after I did. And we started going to Santa Fe, driving out there and just hanging out. And one day we saw that there was this, uh, I looked it up on, or he or I did, I don't remember which, but we looked it up on the, the meeting guide. We saw this Children of Chaos. And for some reason, that just really made a such a big impression on me. I could feel, I could, the word chaos uh, just really spoke to me. And then it turns out the meeting was really, really chaotic too so uh, everybody in there just fit so rusty and calling this project children of chaos i know that you're referencing the term found in the book 12 steps and 12 traditions of alcoholics anonymous which is also known as the 12 and 12 located in the chapter tradition 4 on page 146 which reads children of chaos We have defiantly played with every brand of fire, only to emerge unharmed, and we think wiser. These very deviations created a vast process of trial and error, under the grace of God, has brought us to where we stand today. Will you tell me what that means to you, Rusty? Well, as we were talking earlier, it, uh, for for me, it just per, it just meant everything because that's the way that I grew up. I hadn't really put a word to it before, but the word chaos, and that's what my family was. It was chaos. I grew up in this alcoholic family. Uh, my mom had married three different alcoholics. They were all, all knew each other, and they all worked on the railroad. And the last... Uh, my stepdad that I grew up with he was violent and he and my mom would fight a lot it was just total chaos all the time and so that's what I became that's what my psyche but also my body took that in and when you say children of chaos I think it means something to each one of us differently in our initial conversation on this subject, you also expressed the desire to use music and lyrics from the song In the Living Years, which was written by B.A. Robertson and Mike Rutherford for the group Mike and the Mechanics. And our friend Jody has agreed to share that song with us. So let's do that and then we'll break it down and talk about it a bit, shall we? Jody. Every generation 
blames the one before with all of their frustrations they're beating at your door I'm a prisoner, though all my father held so dear. I know that I'm a hostage to all his hopes and fears. Just wish I could have told him in the living years. Crumpled bits of paper. Filled with imperfect thoughts And stilted conversations I'm afraid that's all we've got You say that you don't see it It says it makes perfect sense You just can't grit agreement In the present tense Talk a different language Talking in defense So say it loud And say it clear You can listen as well as you It's too late When we die To admit we don't see eye to eye So we open up a quarrel present and the past We only sacrifice the future It's the bitterness that lasts So don't yield to the fortunes You sometimes see as fate They may have a new perspective On a different day and if you don't give up and don't give in, you just may be okay. So say it loud, and say it clear, you can listen as well as you It's too late when we die to admit we don't see eye to eye. I wasn't there that morning. father passed away 
didn't get to tell me All the things I had to say I think I caught his spirit Later that same year I'm sure I heard his echo In my baby's newborn tears Just wish I could have told him In the living years So say it loud And say it clear You can listen as well Jody, thanks so much. You know, we recorded the transitions for this podcast with Jody, and I was at home listening to them as I was putting them into the music machine, if you will. And my wife heard the music, and she said, I know that song. And I was like, I think we all know that song, but we may not know the words. And so let's take the lyrics of the song piece by piece and share how it relates to you and your experience. So Rusty, I'm going to come to you first and then we'll go to Jody. And the the first uh, lyrics are, every generation blames the one before and all of our frustrations come beating on your door. Yeah, Tim, I've, I've listened to this song so many times over the years. And uh, when I was 18, I left home for the Navy. Now, at that time, I have no recollection of having resentments. Uh, I had no real introspection or Cognitively I, cognitively, I just wasn't there yet. All I knew is that I had a lot of anger and didn't learn till much later in life that they called, what I called anger was really rage. And I think we're all this way. My level of consciousness or my awareness was that I wanted out of that house and the people in it. My mother smothered me with love, which meant I was her confidant and favorite of the four children and me and my alcoholic stepdad had a running feud. We started fist fighting when I was 16 and I started self-medicating at 15. So 
when it says in the song, comes beating on your door, it had already begun for me. Only years later, and being in recovery, working the steps, and believe me, a lot of therapy, did it become clear to me. Yeah, my, my situation was different than that, but I still relate to the lyrics. Um, I felt that draw to rebel against the conventions my parents hold close. My dad was a Southern Baptist minister. My mom was a school teacher, grew up in a very conservative Southern Baptist home. Um, and when it comes to music, uh, what we did at church was drastically different, different than Witchy Woman by the Eagles or We Will Rock You by Queen. Mm -hmm. and, I, and so I was really drawn towards kind of those beats and really blame myself um, for not wanting what they had. But, but a very opposite experience, Rusty, of, of what you had. In fact, uh, most people would trade their childhood for mine. What's interesting is I have a twin brother who didn't follow me into alcoholism or depression or anxiety, mm -hmm. which, which I think go ha hand in hand for a lot of us, mm -hmm. uh, perceived it totally different. So um, in the big book where it says, there's a story in the big book that says, I am the way I am as a result of the way I reacted to what happened to me when I was a child, how I perceived those things. And so I have, I have some of that too, just through yeah. a different channel. Uh, let me add something to that for just a moment. Uh, when Jody talked about growing up in that religious home that he grew up in, uh, we know today that that there's a lot of rigidity, black and white thinking in not only alcoholic homes, but in religious homes. So there's a connection there between the two. Yeah, that's good. Yep, I like that. Okay. So our next is, I know that I'm a prisoner to all my father held so dear. I know that I'm a hostage to all his hopes and fears. I just wish I could have told him in the living years. Yeah, this, this, was a, this is a difficult one for me because uh, I, never, I never knew my dad. I, I had met my dad three different times. My mom, as I said earlier, raised me. And what happened for me is at 13, me and my brother went to see my dad. And I'll never forget it. Uh, he lived in this one room, and up on the dresser was a pint of Jim Beam, and there was an ashtray there, with the and the, it was just filled with cigarettes, and you know, spilling over onto the table. And he gave us both seven dollars and told us not to come back. And I saw him one more time before he killed himself. He, we, my brother and I went to see him in the hospital when he had cancer. My mom, though, was so possessive of me. She planned out my life, and then when I rebelled at 18 and left, we still don't want to hurt our parents, but we can become, I was a hostage to my mom. And as the years went by, I started resenting it more and more. And we angrily, we as, as human beings, we, we angrily and sometimes finally rebel. And sadly, what happens for us 
is that we continue, or some of us, I didn't, but it was only after I got to AA that my life started to change and I started to see these things and all the codependency, uh, and we'll talk about that later, that uh, I had with her. Jody, how about you? You know, there were a lot of things my dad held dear that, that I didn't. Um, and he was kind of a di- like the dichotomy of good and evil, really. He was on staff full-time at a church, and people looked up to him and admired him and came to him for things because he was on staff full-time at a church. But he also lo- had a he – was, he was motivated by money, and mm-hmm. he was always selling something. In fact, one year we had 18 cars. In 12 months, we had 18 cars, and he made a second income. And, that, and he did that with gold and jewelry. He did it with firearms. He, he, he was a licensed barber, so he cut hair in our garage every night on the weekends. Um, and, wow. and he just never quit working. So we had this really, this really strong work ethic and very high expectations for my brother and I. Mm. And when we missed it, that belt would come off. Mm. And we'd get it from our backs down to our knees. You know, he just swing. He was an angry corrector, if you mm. will. When that belt came off, it was a rage situation. And I, I didn't know how to balance those two sides of my dad. How, 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 on the one hand, are you this powerhouse in the church? But on the other hand, you spanked your kids out of anger. That can't be, that can't be, Mm-mm. that can't be the way. However, once I got sober, began to, once I became a father myself, I began to see my dad differently. Once I became sober, my dad asked me, did I play any part in this? And him just asking that, let that resentment go. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have to respond. I said, you know what, Dad? Um, I think mine's really genetic, and I would have ended up this way regardless of what mm-hmm. you did. And I know you did the best you could. And yeah. that opened up something for us, his admission. That was his admission. He knew. He knew. But I didn't have to beat him up over it. And, um, and then later on in, in recovery, I was five years sober. I lost a job. And couldn't find really meaningful work for two and a half years. My dad came up once a week and took me to lunch. And it was during those visits, once a week for almost two years, that he began to tell about struggles he had had as an adult and a dad and job-wise and mm-hmm. these sorts of things that I had never known. And so uh, different than Rusty and different than a lot of people, um, I was able to rectify with my dad those things. Um, not necessarily we went down the list and said here's all the things you did wrong dad um and he didn't say here's all the things you've done wrong jody we just we rectified that's great i i think we hit upon something that we all have to recognize in addiction and recovery is what is your part in it what is my part in it and that gives us perspective on where we are right here and right now. And I also think that mm-hmm. our parents did the best job they could mm-hmm. with the tools they had. Irregardless, none of us are perfect. Let me say one thing, Tim, about, about this. Uh, what Jody said, I, I absolutely love the way that he put it. And when he, when he talked about, he told his dad, that's what I heard, Jody, that you told your dad that it would have turned out probably the same way for you because it's genetic. I, I believe, I absolutely believe that's the way it is for all of us. I, 
you know, sometimes we're, we find refuge in the alcohol or the drug, right. but genetically, I'm, I'm predisposed. I'm going to be, yep. we talk about all this stuff, that's why it's great to get it out. But to realize the only, and that's a r- way to be able to say that, you know, you're not a victim. Right. We're not victims anymore. Right. Now, we might have, I did, I felt like that for a long time, but I don't now. You know, it's like um, the genetic part of it is a match. And then my using that, uh, my using my resentments is the fuel. And all of these experiences and hanging on to things are the are the wood that make the fire. That's it's, it. it's a combination of things for me. Right. So it, although it's genetic, I hung on to the things that gave me the justification to to for, need to forget about them. Yeah. Until I, I knew better. I didn't know better. Right. I didn't know better. If there was an over-the-counter Benadryl that would fix this, yeah. I was taking it. I was taking what worked. Yeah. It was just really destructive. I love that. And it worked until it didn't. That's right. That's right. Sobriety does very slowly what alcohol did very quickly. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely correct. Okay. Oh, crumbled bits of paper filled with imperfect thought, stilted conversations. I'm afraid that's all we've got. What do you think, Jody? You know, I can remember wanting to go to the seventh grade dance. But Baptists don't dance. At least they didn't back then. And I was not allowed to go. And my, I lost my girlfriend over it because she went and danced with another guy. And then that was her boyfriend. <laughs> and I remember trying to justify this to my dad. Well, David danced and in the Old Testament. And, and eventually he just pounded on the table. This conversation is over. Wow. And accentuated every word with a pound of his fist on the mm-hmm. table. And, and so when I think about stilted conversations that's a stilted conversation Absolutely. because I, I i wanted a justification or a reason i felt like i was a truth seeker you know i but tell me why i don't mm-hmm. and the reason why was he's dad he said so and i can even remember saying in seventh grade is this because you think it's bad or because you're on staff at this church mm-hmm. that's when i think the pounding and the, <laughs> and the table started uh, however as my dad and i uh, my dad was always my biggest fan it just took me a long time to recognize that Right. So as we both matured and grew up, my dad never stopped getting better. So this this kind of he he once my twin brother and I were adults and had our own kids. My dad was a different guy. He improved himself, which made me want to improve myself. And even my son will say every time I was around pop, I, it just made me want to be better. Right. He was very, very, very conscious of that. Uh, so before my dad died and my dad just died in March of this year, April, May, June, July, almost what, four or five months ago, so not that long ago, um, there was nothing left on the table between us. Everything had been rectified. There was no doubts. I, I have to tell you that, you know, I, I never met your dad, but I saw your dad several times. Right. And I've never seen a man that was so proud of his son and the person that he was, not what he'd accomplished, but the person mm, that's good. he had grown up to be. Yeah, for our listeners, he, my dad came to every AA birthday I had yeah. and gave me my coin. Um, you know, when and I would, I would, I was there when he did, and you could, as as Tim said, you could see the love between you guys, and and I had this this I always had this feeling inside of me uh, that I I 
wanted that, and I knew that I would never have it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I was so happy to see that you had that. Yeah, thank you. Rusty, what about you? Well, I, I love this crumpled bits of paper. Uh, man, how many did I, how many sheets of paper did I, and I always visualize this, writing, a, writing it out and then crumbling it up and throwing it in the trash can and, and missing the trash can, of course. There was so much pain that I carried. And as we get in this today, and Jody's talking about his dad, that, that pain with my father uh, was just immense. I, I don't even know that I realized how much at that time. I just was being, I was an insane person is what I was. See, only through facing my own fears first was I able to outwardly take, actually take pen in hand. And that was, of course, after I got sober. And that was in Alcoholics Anonymous and doing my first, fourth, and fifth step. And I have done many since then, and I've had a lot of therapy that I've also, I, I really do believe in therapy, if you have the right therapist. True, true fact. You say you just don't see it. He says it's perfect sense. You just can't get agreement in this present tense. We all talk a different language, talking in defense. There's so much in this. I want to be really self-disclosed here. I'm going to, I'm, there's so much in it that I, I'm going to read this because I don't want to not get it all in. And I wrote, just the realization that every generation blames the one before was an aha moment for me. And it was. It was that way for both my deceased parents, my children, and it will be for my grandchildren and when my great-grandchildren come of age for them also every generation will do this and it's amazing to me that somewhere along the line somebody doesn't get this and but then I go on to say here we're all talking from a point of view of events that happened in our own lifetime in our own frame of reference and if you don't see the idea that we all have our own journey we will be in constant conflict conflict and misunderstandings. And that's the way I, my whole life was. My whole life was that way. I was in constant conflict with people. Only after recovery did it start to change. When you really realize that, you'll begin to see that each generation was doing the best they could with what they had to work with. And I, let me add this, that was true for most, that is true for most humans, but not all. There are exceptions. When I talk with my children or my grandchildren, I try to be aware that they are have, having their own unique journey so that we're not talking in defense. That's good. Um, again, my experience is a little bit different, mm -hmm. but relevant, and I can relate yeah. to what you're talking about. Um, when I became a father uh, in 2004, Five, I began to give my father a lot more grace. And one thing that I realized years later is that nobody can teach you how to parent a child. Every child's different. Every parent's different. Uh, but my dad was a great example of how to support an adult child. So I can remember as a teenager, this is probably true for most teenagers, and I taught 
before I was a principal for over 15 years. So I've seen a lot of, in middle schools and high schools, mm -hmm. so I've, I've seen a lot of teenagers mm -hmm. and parents uh, that as that, as that teenager, you know, works to become his or her own person, then there's that dissonance with the parent with authority and this sort of thing. I mean, what teenager listening to rock and roll music doesn't think his favorite singer is the best prophet of their generation? <laughs> you know, it, it just, that's the way it is. And so when my own son began to get into that point and at 14 said, I'm not sure I believe in the God you believe in. And then at 16 was, was using marijuana quite a bit. And then at 16 and 17 flunked a couple of classes. I began calling people in the program. So I began using resources that my parents didn't have. My parents thought, and I'm projecting this on them, but from my experience with them, if we can just control it and threaten them enough, they'll do right. My twin brother has a yeah. higher IQ than I do. He was in summer school every summer because he was going to show them. Nobody's going to make him do anything, right? And so, mm -hmm. but with my dad, I could sit down and say, my, my son has said he doesn't know that he believes in the God that we believe in. That's interesting. And, and can bring these things up. Um, and my time in the program, so I've been calling people and calling people and calling people in the program that have raised kids. And I learned, I learned three things. I'm not his counselor. I'm not his treatment center. I'm not the one that needs to map out his path. Amen. So why, aside from allowing him just to do very dangerous things, why would I keep him from the things he needs to go through to become who he needs to become? He's at a point where he's not going to college this year, which for a lot of people is a huge disappointment. Oh, yeah. But he's right where he's supposed to be, and he's doing great. And you know what? We made it through those rough years. He's 18 now. And last week I was just texting him, supporting him, loving him, and he said, Thanks for being the most positive influence in my life. Wow. And, well, what did I do? Well, I just was his dad. Yeah. But I'm a dad in recovery. Yeah. Just pursuing a better version of me every day, right? I, as seriously flawed as I am, this is the best version of me there's ever been, and that's living proof of it. In fact, later today, he's coming over on his day off, and I said, what do you want to do? He said, just spend quality time with my dad. Yeah. And you're... you're projecting this new learned behaviors through recovery yes and setting an example for him and hopefully breaking a cycle absolutely hopefully absolutely my, my parents didn't think to do any different than their parents did and they were raised by people that lived through the great depression there's a whole podcast series there children yeah, absolutely. Chaos related to the yes. great depression but it was a it was a life or death matter yeah. and so my twin brother and i decided we're going to Let's let's work together and approach this a little differently. And that was even before I was sober. But but sobriety has has given. I mean, it is a pattern for living in the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that I needed but had no idea I needed or how it would influence my life. Yeah, and I love the, the way he talked about he and his son. That's why I love seeing younger men come into the program, because their children are they either haven't had children or their children are still very young, and they can repair whatever that is. For me, I was, uh, my kids, all my kids were already grown, and the damage had been done. Uh, the other thing is, is that I worked at the Tulsa Boys Home for years with, with young men, 13 to 18, and Jody was this, a principal in a junior high, right, yes, Jody? that's right. Yeah, and, and those boys that I dealt with, 90% of the time there was no father. He was either just not there, didn't care, kind of like my dad, uh, 
or he was in prison or something like uh, that. So I got to, to try to do the best I could to help those boys, to see that there was a male figure in their life. Today, I have both, I have two grandsons that are in recovery. It's such a joy to have that relationship with him that I didn't have the opportunity to do with my own children. So we open up a quarrel between the present and the past. We only sacrifice the future. It's the bitterness mm -hmm. that lasts. Well, the quarrel is actually what I sometimes call the committee meets, and it's all in my mind. The mind always wants, to, always wants to be right. Actually, it's my ego. So it is so poignantly pointed out in the big book how much is your emotional sobriety worth? Bitterness has no place if you want to live an authentic life. And that can only happen for us, for people that are alcoholic or addict. The, the only way we can live an authentic life is to stay in recovery. I've been in recovery over 39 years, and I would not be here today if I hadn't have been willing to give up the quarrel. You say that you've been here in recovery for 39 years. Mm -hmm. I've been here for four and a half, 10 for Toby. So when I think about that, yeah, the quarrel and, and, and what Rusty's saying about the mind wanting to be right, um, I see things that just really clearly as black and white. I struggle with gray area. There's mm -hmm. a lot of growth in gray area. Mm -hmm. but, but the way I can articulate this is um, I had to replace things. So I had to replace resentments with love. Mm -hmm. I had to replace bitterness with forgiveness. And so when those thoughts of resentment or bitterness crept up and I could recognize them, I would journal, write things down. Sometimes I would start a voice memo on my phone and just talk to myself and talk mm -hmm. it out. Um, and so I had to replace one with the other because I had to learn how to live differently. But um, really, really for me as well, this, this is really about a living amends. And that, that means doing uh, the best I can for others while thinking less about myself. Um, I have a magnet on the refrigerator that says, don't look backwards, you're not going that way. <laughs> and I, I cannot grab a, I, I'm the type of, of hopeless and helpless alcoholic that needed to grab onto AA with both hands. There was no treading water. It was complete submersion. And if I'm holding on to the past, I can't let go with, I can't grab onto AA with both hands. And that's difficult, uh, but I've learned how to do it. Okay, so next is don't yield to the fortunes you sometimes see as fate. It may have a new perspective on a different day. And if you don't give up and you don't give in, you may just be okay. You know, one of the difficult things for me in recovery was that everything is just for today. I've had to learn that I'm right where I'm supposed to be. If that meant being a school principal, that meant being a school principal. If that meant essentially being unemployed for over two years <laughs> and just having two years off to pick my son up from school mm -hmm. and <laughs> and go to meetings every day. Um, I have to enjoy the seat I'm in regardless of how I got in it, right? Like sometimes I put myself in places and sometimes circumstantially we end up in places, right? Mm -hmm. Like my dad getting cancer and dying. I didn't want to put myself in that seat next to him, but I was able to and to live uh, through that 
that with him. It's that daily reprieve we talk about. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything daily before I got into recovery. Maybe I was mad daily. Mm-hmm. Well, except drinking, right? But, I mean, anything healthy. I was stuck, as the book says, in an endless, awful now. I could imagine nothing good happening in the future. When I got divorced from my son's mom, he was 15, 18 months old, and I was an emotional wreck. I had untreated anxiety and depression, which, mm-hmm. as Rusty's alluded to, I've, I've done talk therapy, love talk therapy, uh, and get, get medical help in that way as well. But I was such a wreck, I, I, just, I considered suicide at that time because I knew the only thing my son could do if he was around me was grow up and be just like me, and there was nothing worse than that. Now, fast forward, he said last week, thanks right. for being the most positive <laughs> example in my life. I mean, this, yeah, completely. It's one, one day at a time, stacks mm-hmm. up in a way that you're li- for me, that my life has completely changed. Rusty, how about one day at a time? Well, one day at a time, I believe that's the most difficult concept, and I hear it all the time in meetings and talking with people. That concept is so foreign to people. If I tried what I do, is that I, I plan for the future, but I live in today. And when I do that, I'm doing okay. I usually I can do today. I can always do today, but I plan for the future. Also, it doesn't help that I'm still pretty perfectionistic. I want certain things done a certain way. I try not to be black and white, but sometimes I am. I have to realize, see, I, I, I think a lot about the mind. Ernie Larson talks about that in Stage 2 Recovery. And the mind is always out to get me because the mind is really is really my ego, and it never wants my highest and best good. That's where sponsorship and going to meetings and talking to others really has made a difference for me. My willingness to listen to the God consciousness, which has grown so much over the years, uh, for me, it's a constant. There's always... I. There's many, many times that I don't know what God's will for me is, but I know what it's not. And I, you know, in the, in the 12 and 12, it talks about that the thing that was missing in my life was a sincere desire to seek and do God's will. And I do seek to do God's will every day. Every day. I seek that. I want that in my life. It's easy to say, let me do your will, not mine today. But what actually does that mean? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we try and make God's will look like our own will. <laughs> Absolutely. Until we learn to get out of the way mm-hmm. and accept what happens for a reason. Or what happens, happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to work. Right. So our next is, I wasn't there that morning when my father passed away. I didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say. The first time I heard this song, and before the song was over, I'm driving down the the road just crying my heart out. Because when when it hit this verse, I remember this. I wasn't there the morning when my father passed away. I only saw my dad three or four times in my life. One of those when he was lying in his casket, but no 
man, no human being, had more influence over my life than he did. We throw around words like abandonment and betrayal of people who have caused traumas in our lives. But the pain it causes us, I'm not able to put into words. Years in recovery and a lot of therapy brought me to where I'm at today, and that is forgiveness. I forgave my dad a long time ago. The elevator goes all the way to the basement, but you can get off on any level you want to. And I chose to get off before the basement. He went to the basement. When he, when he killed himself, he had to be a broken man. You were not in recovery when your dad passed no, away? No, no, I was not. In fact, it, it, the truth of it is, thanks for bringing that up, the truth of it is, is that it drove me deeper into my alcoholism and my addiction. I was a value addict also. That victim role that I didn't know I was in drove me deeper. Well, my, my situation with my dad was completely different. My dad literally died five months ago today. Five months ago today, my dad died, and I was there when he died. I was the only one in the mm -hmm. room. My twin brother and my mom had stepped out. He had gone to a hospice care facility the night before, and you don't go there to get better. He knew, he, he, he told my mom, it's time to go. We need to go. I was there that night too. My twin brother and my mom got him in the car, I shook his hand. I couldn't get there to hug him, and he was really sick. And uh, he said, I'll see you again, was the last thing he said. Wow. And, um, wow. And um, my mom and my brother had stepped. So I came. They lived 90 miles away. My son and I were there. I came back that night. I played music at my church the next morning, raced back to Oklahoma City, and I was there 45 minutes as he died. He passed away. Mm. Um, but I was there. I didn't want to be there. It was gross. <laughs> um but I was there, and I was present, and I played my part. And my dad and I were so good. We connected on such a spiritual level before mm -hmm. he died. I remember him telling me the day before he died, I was sitting next to him, holding his hand, and I said, what can I do? And he said, you're doing it. And he looked at me and said, you're the perfect son for me. Wow. Wow. What a gift. What a gift. You got, uh, peop I realized that whether people are in recovery or have or children of chaos or not mm -hmm. most men and and maybe women i can't speak for for other women for women don't get that opportunity with their dad and i'll take it i mean that yeah. that i knew my dad felt that way but he was able to say it and i was able to receive it right mm -hmm. so it wasn't you're the perfect son for me oh yeah then why did you and yeah. that's where i was before i ever got in recovery it was so selfish and I said, you were the perfect dad for me. And we both just held hands and cried. I think I caught his spirit later that same year. I'm sure I heard his echo in my baby's newborn tears. Mm. I just wish I could have told him in the living years. When my father died, I was called by an attorney who had assigned by the city to call me. My dad had retired from the Frisco Railroad and moved back to his boyhood home in Monette, Missouri. 
I was told my father had passed away and I was his closest living relative and that I needed to come and take care of the funeral arrangements. When I got there though, the attorney told me that the closest person to him was, was this barmaid. So I go down to this bar to meet her and we talk about my dad and he lived right across the street from the bar and he, by that time he was in his 70s and he was so sick, he couldn't, he couldn't drink, but he, that's the only life he knew, so he hung out in this bar, and she would feed him. And one day he told her, uh, I'm going to be out of town for a couple of days, don't check on me. And then, in a, she, I can't remember, she said in two or three days she went, she, he didn't show up, so she went up, walked across, and went to his room and, and found him uh, laying there. Well, what he had done after he left that bar is he walked across that, that street, went that flight of stairs into that room. He had a little half bed that he slept on. It's just one room. And in Houston, they had these big wash pans that people would wash up. That's what he had. So what he had done, he had taken this wash pan, big wash pan, and laid it down beside that bed. And then he just laid down there and slit his wrist and bled out in that wash pan. I was so angry. He left no note or will. He left a small amount of money in a savings account who he had put his sister to receive in case of his death. No acknowledgement of me or my brother. Just the acknowledgement. The money didn't make a hoot to me. What made a difference is, is there, even in his death, he couldn't acknowledge me or, or my brother Jimmy. And that even, see, that just, for me anyway, and you got to realize I, I'm in that victim mode, not knowing I'm a victim, but feeling it full force, I also wrote, I have, no, uh, have not caught his spirit nor heard his echo. I haven't. If my dad was a victim of anything, it was the disease of alcoholism. Like so many of those that never found any type of recovery, he died alone. He was 73 years old. This is the, really the miracle of recovery. And for us, specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, is that you could say there's a direct correlation if we were doing a science experiment mm -hmm. between the support I had from my dad and the way we had such a great relationship mm -hmm. to my recovery. There's a direct line of support. Mm -hmm. The antithesis of that, the direct opposite of that, is Rusty's scenario. Mm -hmm. And he still had to fight and fight and fight for his recovery in a way that I didn't. Not that I didn't have to fight for recovery. I had to fight myself. But Rusty didn't have the support I had. That's the, mir that's the miracle of this. And so, you know, we see the, the I'm sure, I think I caught his spirit, I heard, mm -hmm. heard his echo. Um, we could do that vicariously. <clears throat> Rusty said, when your dad came to the meetings and gave you your chip annually for your birth AA birthday, I was happy for you. I wasn't resentful that I didn't have that. I could see it in you. Mm -hmm. um, and having a rough and tumble dad that lived on the railroad seemed really attractive to me mm -hmm. compared to what I had. It's just fascinating. Mm 
It is um, fascinating. You know, and, the, the, and what makes it more fascinating, we didn't plan this at all. No. I mean, I had no. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that echo for me is the recovery. It's it's yeah. it's this. It's it's picking up on each other's uh, hopes and each other's fears and our successes and our failures and knowing we're okay. Yeah. Yes. Really, that's the echo for me. I, you know, I have an 18 year old son, so I have lots of examples to practice what my dad practiced with me. Uh, my twin brother and I have picked up different roles, you know, that my dad played for my mom. Uh, but, um, but I don't believe he can he can see us or has any idea what's going on down here. Why why would you if you were somewhere else? Why would you want to look down here and see what we're <laughs> going through? But um, certainly, certainly, certainly feel a presence and the echo, if you will, of recovery through mm -hmm. all, all of us, like guys like Tim and and Rusty sitting here who have completely different backgrounds and stories than mine but we all have this common thing and that's what we wanted was to have something in common with somebody else mm -hmm. say it loud say it clear you can listen as well as you can hear it's too late when we die to admit we don't see eye to eye there's nothing more important to me today than supporting the people that I love and care about even if I don't agree with them where before, if I didn't agree with you, I kept you at such a distance. I don't own anyone's issues, and I can't control the outcome of anyone's actions. What I can be a supporting uh, and a living example of the, the power of recovery. Uh, I like to ask questions to the people that I love. Well, why, why did you choose that? Or what do you think you might do next? And I've given up telling people what to do. If I knew what was good for myself, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've built a beautiful life. Through my higher power and the 12 steps of recovery, a beautiful life has been built that I get to play an active part in. I actually had very little to do with it because I had to let go of ego and self, mm -hmm. but I did the work. Uh, and, and I'm not willing to jeopardize that by trying to control anybody else. Well, for me, the, uh, this past 39 years of this journey and my recovery, I've had to come to realize that a what a tremendous impact the 12 steps had on my life has on my life, continues to have on my life. Writing letters of resentment, forgiveness, amends, brought about a whole new reshaping of my human ex experience. Now there will be no regrets about what I should have said or done. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been a production of childrenofchaos.net, and we invite you to share your thoughts with us via email to comments at childrenofchaos.net. Children of Chaos is a forum to discuss topics related to and in concert with addiction and recovery in America, is not affiliated with, endorsed, or financed by any recovery or treatment program, organization, or institution. Any views, thoughts, or opinions expressed by an individual in this venue are solely that of the individual and do not reflect the views, policies, or position of any specific recovery-based entity or organization.